A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through chapter 36 of Brandon Sanderson's The Hero of Ages. there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words into whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club crossland is no longer here we, we meant to mm-hmm. do this episode as an in-person test because we've been remote the entire time that we've had this show going and uh, cross is finally in town like sweet we'll get some episodes done and then we proceed to drink and have fun and see friends and not record anything. So now he's back in his hometown for a day before leaving again. And I miss you already. It's true. This is being recorded on Tuesday, like right before this episode is coming out. So this is one of the shortest turnarounds we've had in a, in a while on an episode. Yeah. And to that point, <laughs> I am gone very soon. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm sad that we didn't get to do what we wanted to, but we did still record something in person. We just didn't get to do everything that we wanted to. We didn't get to get through all of it. So right. Womp womp. Sometimes that happens. With that, today is our fifth episode discussing The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 30 through 36. But before we do that, PJ, what are you having today? I am drinking a key lime pie martini, and Mm. I found a recipe for this a while back, and then I was looking for it and couldn't find it, but I found a bunch of different ones, and they were all slightly different, and... I don't know. This is kind of an amalgamation of all of them, but it's not. None of them were as good as the one that I. None of them sounded as good as the one that I found. So I tried to recreate that to the best of my ability. I don't think I got that close, but Mm -hmm. I think uh, you'll 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 see what I'm talking about. I think it's some some part of it is just uh, ingredient based problems, but it is two ounces of liquor, 43, one ounce of vodka three quarters of an ounce of key lime simple syrup, three quarters of an ounce of half and half, all shaken and served in a graham cracker rimmed glass. So I think this has legs. I think this like really, really works. But I think my biggest problem is that the key lime simple that I made is not key limey enough. Mm. Basically, I was trying to make candy key lime wedges. Or wheels and first of all that didn't work i don't know if i didn't slice them thin enough or if i didn't give it enough time or what but it just didn't work and second of all it's just not limey enough you can smell it and it's a really intense smell when you smell the simple syrup and you can taste it when you taste it alone but in the cocktail it just kind of get lo- gets lost so what i would do instead i think it's also a little bit too sweet it's very much a I'm going to a martini lounge and these are all listed as martinis, but are they really kind of drink <laughs> a little bit too sweet? So I cut back on the key lime simple. I think I'd even go maybe as low as a quarter ounce or I'd straight up go like Demerar simple syrup for a quarter ounce and then like half an ounce of key lime juice 
instead. Really bump up that lime flavor and add a little bit of depth of like character to match the graham cracker and the liquor 43 coming through. So that's where I'm at with that one. Back half beer. Underwater Panther from the Fermentorium is a triple IPA with honey. This one is one that you and I had, you and I each had one of these while you were here. Mm -hmm. Really nice, smooth. It's not quite a hazy IPA, I don't think I'd say. It's more of a West Coast IPA, a little bit less bitter than I would expect from something of that style, but maybe that's to do with the honey. One of my one of our friends referred to it as stout like in character. I think that's also to do with the honey, but I don't know if I agree with them on that. Yeah, I don't know about stout like. I think that I mean I guess I get that sweetness and I can understand that coming through. For me, the fruit felt really pronounced actually with with the honey flavor. So I thought that the honey and the fruit was really pronounced. This is one of the things that I, I wanted to really do with that in person episode is talk about this. Conveniently, you're drinking a beer that we both had, so at the very least I feel like we can. But I, I did I did get quite a bit of honey. I remember yeah, the honey definitely the- comes through. Yeah, because we had the two beers. We had that and then the Super Freak. And I did prefer the Super Freak, but I didn't... I I liked the Underwater Panther. Underwater Panther, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Super Freak is yeah. a hazy IPA from Drecker out of Fargo. Yes. So, I just really like the, the label on this one. It's just a whole bunch of waves with some tentacles subtly nice. in the background. Yeah. The secret little Cthulhu monster there. Underwater Panther gonna get you. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. Cool. What about you? What are you drinking? I, you know, I don't. I don't know what to call it. Right. Like, I didn't realize. Of course, I'm only here for 24 hours, so I didn't realize that I was out of rye because i didn't remember what i had in stock 10 days prior and i didn't have any citrus because i didn't go to the grocery store i had actually pre-bought some frozen meals because i knew that i was going to need something at home so i bought them ahead of time for this day because i knew that i wasn't gonna have time to cook stuff for meals so just like okay do that so similarly cocktail planning was out the window thankfully my dad gave me a a couple of beers so i'm having another devil sun ipa that he gave me yesterday when i brought dinner over to their house that i had brought but the cocktail that i'm having is what i'm terming the bushwick special i say that because there's a brooklyn cocktail there's a bronx cocktail there's you know a a number of cocktails that are, are named after the different boroughs of manhattan and i figured like why not bring it down to a neighborhood and this is basically a spin on the perfect Manhattan of which I've had on the show a couple of times. What I did is instead of rye, two ounces of bourbon, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, half an ounce of dry vermouth and four dashes of grapefruit bitters. So with all that said, uh, with Bitterman's hops, grapefruit bitters, cause I love it. Um, all that said, I haven't tried it yet, but oh man, I so prefer the grapefruit bitters. I would, I would say if I had a little bit more time to prepare, I'd probably grab a grapefruit garnish and expression of oils as well, just to get a little bit more of that on top. But it is, you know, it's, it's just, it is a reworked Manhattan. And so instead of calling it, I don't know, I probably could have called it some suburban Manhattan, but I, I don't have a special attachment, I guess, to any (laughs) suburbs. So I just picked where I lived when I lived in New York. So for now, it'll be called the Brook, the Bushwick Special until I figure out something else. But, you know, basically just spit on Manhattan, swapping out the whiskey and uh, swapping out the bitters. Nice. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Yeah. I just took another sip and, of this martini. 
mm-hmm. you can call it that. And the lime's coming through more. I don't know if that's just my taste buds being more used to it, but yeah, maybe there's maybe there's less tweaking that I have to do, but I don't know. I'll come back to it at cool. some point, I'm sure. Hey, I mean, fair enough. Whatever works. Mm-hmm. Definitely bring it up if it significantly changes or like morphs into like a banana cream pie. You have to bring it up <laughs> if it changes into a banana cream pie martini. That's fair. I will be upset. Uh, so would I. That right. sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's not really bad. <laughs> Just like little chunks of banana in the cocktail. <laughs> so <sighs> with that, before we talk about these chapters, PJ, how did you feel about this week's reading? Any any like overall thoughts? This week's reading felt a lot more like setup. Like there's, it, it's like I don't know. Like he's got to set up more dominoes. Like we've we've been kind of going through the racetrack a little bit and like oh no pit stop set up some more like exposition and then we'll get going again that's kind of the vibe that i got off of this section not in a bad way like it's just a whole lot more additional information that i'm sure will get paid off later yeah in in a very similar way i feel like it's a stretching of the rubber band right so we had the rubber band stretched to a certain level of tension and now we're just stretching it a lot further so that it just goes harder you know what i mean like it's most of these things were here but this is to make sure that they're fleshed out enough and so it is like lining up extra dominoes right to like make sure that they can all fall satisfactorily and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but it does feel like this week is predominantly set off with with some long term payoff that we'll talk about. There's there are some things that pay off some long term moments that we've been kind of waiting for for a long time. So that that was kind of my net feelings on this whole week is there's a lot of like long term payoff from the first book. You know, this is the end of a trilogy. And so it's important to think about the whole thing in spectrum of how do we bring all of this to a close? We have to tie all those knots up together. But yeah, that's that's kind of it's kind of what I feel is this feels like it's a culmination of a couple of different plot threads, which then maybe makes you scratch your head a little bit and wonder <laughs> something bad, something good. What's what's going to happen? I don't know. I will also say we get a lot of hemolurgy this week. Like we get hemolurgy in the <laughs> log books so i know that we kind of ended last week with this but i i do want to at the very least make mention of it because we do get a comparison of information here i know that we we almost never start with the logbook because we end last week with it but i do want to reread last week's logbook so originally men assumed that rashik's persecution of the terrorist religion came from hatred. Yet we know that Rashik was himself a terrorist. His destruction of that religion seems odd. I suspect it had something to do with the prophecies about the Hero of Ages. Rashik knew that preservation's power would eventually return to the Well of Ascension. If the terrorist religion had been allowed to survive, then perhaps someday a person would find their way to the Well and take up the power, then use it to defeat Rashik and overthrow his empire. So he obscured the knowledge of the hero and what he was supposed to do, hoping to keep the well, the secret of the well to himself. And this is this addressed in the second logbook of like the proposal of why he would do that. The idea that the reason he would want to make sure he could take preservations power Mm-hmm. would be to put ruin back in his place or defeat yes, ruin or yes. whatever yeah yeah right and and he he knows i think he also this also implies that he knew that he wasn't the hero himself 
and that maybe there wasn't a hero to begin with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you know who's who's picking up the actual like is there even a hero anyone can pick this up so he obscures it and gets rid of that religion yeah which is his own religion so this also makes it very clear that ruins power is different in some way or is separate in some way from preservation's power i think that had been a prospect before but i don't know if it was explicit until this logbook entry which I don't think it was. Yeah. I don't yeah. I think explicitly it wasn't. Right. So this just reapproaching it and thinking about it some more makes me wonder and this this is going tangential, I know, but what would have happened if Vin had taken up the power for herself instead of letting it go? Would anything positive have happened or would it have been either a straight up trick? Or come with a twist, like a like a malicious genie. Like what? What's the? What is the difference between the two powers? Or are they identical? And it's just who's presenting them. That's a great question. Yeah, that's that's definitely a read and find out. And we do get a little bit more on preservation and ruin this week in the logbooks. So we'll definitely have more to say. I think on that front as a whole. Mm-hmm. So that's, fair. that's the other reason that I wanted to reread this is because I think it kind of provides some context to what we're going to kind of talk about for the rest of the week to some degree. You know, it's either it's either hemallergy uh, and sort of the th- the three magic systems that we have on this planet or it's ruin and preservation. So it feels like it all kind of ties together into one thread. So we start off the week here with Ellen kind of reading the room similar to the way that he didn't well in the well of ascension to start this off. This feels like a chapter that almost feels like it's plucked out of the middle section of the well of ascension in which you get kind of the full conversation between everyone. Part of that is like talking about the formal line of succession. Part of that is talking about who's going to lead the army. And, you know, as, as a big part of that whole conversation, we discuss Sazed, of whom is really the successor of both him and Vin die. At this point, can you imagine Sazed becoming the emperor? At this point, absolutely. We've already had one sad boy lord ruler. We can have sad boy <laughs> <laughs> Sazed. As I'm seeing what one Terrasman could do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And later on, it becomes more clear that I think that could be good. But I think we'll get into that then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, specifically, I, if we want to kind of tease it a little bit, it's when he's talking to Spook mm-hmm. and says he's talking yeah. to Spook. The, the other thing that I get from this, did you get any of that sort of the similar crew tightness in this section? A little bit. It's a little bit different with set there. Yeah, the dynamics off are different. The, for yeah, sure. the dynamics definitely different, but it it is at the very least the inner the inner chamber conversation again. It's it's the roundtable conversation that we've been missing for a while because it ha- it's been extenuating circumstances for the most part since since the deposition of Ellen. Yeah, definitely. So. Obviously, as we've been talking about last week and whatnot, we're prepping for a ball and Vin comes in and shocks the crew looking gorgeous and complaining about the difficulty of dressing up. <laughs> I, I love the way that this whole kind of scene goes. It's it's a very fun moment, but it, it's especially funny where like Ham 
has trapped set with like these philosophical puzzles and ham also kind of playing the part of like the reluctant father seeing a couple off before like prom you know i I think ham in this moment is just so funny and i think ellen even makes this comment somewhere about like how he's noticing ham being more himself because he has someone to like pitch his philosophical stuff to that doesn't that like doesn't like it or pushes back (laughs) yeah um because he's been missing that in breeze and says it so that's it's just it's a fun thing to see in a bunch of different ways and i'm glad that ham has kind of become this you know it's it's sad because ham has become like a joke kind of in a way because he's such an interesting philosophical lens or he was in the first couple of books and now it's kind of like ah it's funny to be trapped with that guy because yep. he's you know at the same time you've got the uncle who won't stop talking about whatever xyz thing you yeah know? yeah I for sure know. it's so good i'm with you the other funny part about this was Vin's conversation and Vin mm. deflecting the questions about where the dress came from and like claiming it's beneath her as a misborn to talk about such things. Like it was yeah, obviously a little tongue in cheek and a little bit funny, a little bit goofy, but kind of trying pretending to fit into that high society stereotype of oh. stuffy, stuffy dress wearing ball going person right right i think that that's so fun and obviously there's there's a bunch of parts in this section that we'll get to talk about a little bit later when we actually get to the ball but this feels like a more complete vin in a lot of ways and that's why it's kind of nice to see this kind of balancing of humor and juxtaposition of like oh well this is a little floofy it feels like she's playing again you know in the first book it Mm -hmm. felt like she was kind of cornered but then she gets to this point where she's playing and kind of experiencing and having a good time with life and but she doesn't realize that until it's gone that she was Mm -hmm. enjoying it yeah yeah and that's i i know that i spent a lot of time picking at this wound in the last book but it kind of becomes text here so we'll talk about that more but you know that was that was kind of why i was bringing it up because it's like well it is kind of but it's like it's just not to the degree that you know it's there it's just not to the degree that she's you know wants or thinks that she should be at anyway we'll talk about that in a bit but now the pair of ellen and vin finally make their way off into that other ball that we're talking about and it really feels like a return to form where they were in the first book you know it's it's a payoff of a promise that didn't feel like we would get it you know and it feels so good because the most important thing i think from this entire chapter is that Vin admits that she's grown into someone that she likes. I And I think that that is just such a, like, it's such an incredible moment compared to where she's at in the first book. Compared, we've seen her grow, we've seen her change. And I think we talked about it at the beginning of this book. This book doesn't feel like Vin's book. The first two books very much so feel like Vin's book. This one, less so. And I, I think this is a part of the reason why, because she has become the person that she needs to be. And so... It's hard to focus on her character work when uh, when she's already done. Yeah, I think beyond. So I, I'm conflicted about this scene because mm-hmm. while I really like what you just mentioned about Vin, and I also really love how bold their entrance is, like shooting down and just like superhero landing as Mistborn into the <laughs> into the red carpet, essentially is what they do. Mm-hmm. But it's surrounded by. Where it's interwoven, interwoven with this sort of cartoonish, unresolved aggression from Ellen to the guards that just goes, it goes completely unresolved, like completely unaddressed. 
after this scene. Like he straight up pushes a guard with pewter across the room and then they just walk on before they can call someone and then it just never gets addressed again, which I felt I felt like with somebody that high profile and doing something intentionally that high visibility in order to get into this event, you would think there would be at least some callback to it and some maybe mention of it from someone later, but it, it's just, yeah, like lost. The, the gaggle of women, you know, would have been, would have been a great opportunity to like bring that up to some degree. But I, I think there's an element of fear there. I do agree with you. It does feel weird to me. It would have been better to like Jedi mind trick in, you know, like do some soothing or rioting or what have you to like make their way in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something which I, I think yeah something other than like it, it just felt like a cartoon i don't know how else mm-hmm. to describe it. it it just took me out of the moment sure sure yeah i like i said i i don't i don't fully disagree i i think that it could have been addressed in other other things other moments but i mean at the same time like that's an intimidation tactic more than anything else too which is also what they're kind of doing to get in here it's just that you would expect some follow up on on who's intimidated by it, you know, mm-hmm. like it's very clear that's the intent of the move. Yeah. The question is, is why didn't we see people be intimidated by it? Or and why that doesn't mean yeoman necessarily? It just means it could have been yeoman. It could have been yeoman talking about the hypocrisy Yeoman's of coming in here. No, but as no. as fuel for his for sure. his argument against Ellen for like how kind he, of, he, how he came into the party, how he strong-armed himself into the party doesn't doesn't he mention that he like showed up to the party without an invitation though like yeah but he didn't he didn't say he assaulted a guard (laughs) to get in i'm sure he gets a scar guard and he doesn't really care that's you know yeah maybe fair because he is he is maintaining that same sort of demure attitude about the whole leadership thing and yeah Mm mm-hmm to, to your point, though, I, I think I agree with you entirely. I would have rather seen like a Jedi mind trick as but at the same time, like a big flourish. Sure. You know, yeah. something showy. It does feel off that it wouldn't be mentioned. It feels like in an adaptation, like we're saying, you would see him push and this guy like skid on his butt across the floor. And it could be like kind of a funny comedic moment. But then you see the fallout of that moment be the people around reacting and kind of like whispering and going quiet you know the whole dance floor goes quiet or whatever the music stops and then they like walk in and hand the yeah. card to the, to the announcer right right yeah you know i think that that's that's how you would adapt that scene to to make sense so i agree with you i can see all the details but it's like i'm just missing the through line if, to make the whole thing work yeah perfectly so I, I also really love the way that Vin approaches these women after they kind of break off and separate into their groups, because like they say, the cliques have pretty much separated by genders at this point. They, they said there are some couples dancing and in pairs dancing, but they've pretty much separated into these gaggles of people. And after reflecting on what she was like when she was playing the part of Valette Renew, it's just so cool to see her be back in this moment where she was so shy. And instead now she just kind of makes a big point about the fact that like she killed Sean Ariel, who is a cousin <laughs> to lady Patrison Patrison. And it's, it's just such a good moment all around. But, but what'd you make of kind of the intimidation tactics and, and what's going on? I think she's, first of all, very comfortable in the position that she's in now. I think it's for no small part 
due to the fact that she spent so much time as Valette, just sitting back and watching and taking everything in and really kind of studying and understanding exactly how these women interacted and reacted to different types of people and different personalities and different conversations. So this feels very, very much channeling both Sean Alariel and just the boldness that comes with being an empress and the heir to the survivor and just all the high profile positions that she's been thrust into. This feels like a rounding out of that and her becoming comfortable finally in her sort of place of authority. And that's great. Like, like you said, like this is a payoff and we have the promise of like these things happening beforehand And then the situation of the well of ascension demands that we kind of ignore that promise because there's so much kind of going on around it that it's like balls aren't necessary. This government's failing. We have to do other things. We've got to find the well. I'm really sick in the head. I'm this knife and I need to do that. And it gets to a point that we'll talk about a little bit later. And she brings it up as such because it's like I could have been doing this. This should have been me. Instead, I let other things rule me. And that's why I think it's such a great moment is because, like you said, it has it's a giant payoff on a promise. Yeah, totally. And like totally, mastery. totally agree. I think that's the big thing is I, I like seeing characters go from novice to masters in a lot of things. And this is a perfect example of that. And it feels very well handled. It does. So with that, we go into chapter 31. We've got a very short logbook here. Rashik wore both black and white. I think he wanted to show that he was a duality, preservation and ruin. This, of course, was a lie. After all, he'd only touched one of the powers, and only in a very small way at that. That's also interesting. So this was what I was kind of alluding to before, to a certain extent. The fact mm-hmm. that like these are very, very different sources. Whether or not they're different powers, I don't know. But we, we know what Rashik did with the power. We know what he did with preservation's power what he's able to do he very significantly and in a very real way affected not only the world but the the flora and fauna within it and that's in a small way what the fuck dude what's in a big way i mean collapsing galaxies like what what are the cosmic implications of this power and how far reaching can this go sounds like something that'd be really fun to explore in like a multi-book a multi kind of universe planetary series nobody would do anything like that because it's cosmic it's kind of fun nah who would do that who would do that who would read that different magic sources and styles and planets and worlds right right doesn't now given I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about Elantris because we still haven't even done that for the the episode that we want to do yet. But it raises interesting questions having read two things now, right? Mm -hmm. It does. So, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about that probably more in the Elantris episode and eventually in like a wrap up. So when we get there, I don't think you've read prologue of that book either yet because I don't believe I have. No. Anyway, we'll have to have you do that before we we get to it. So 
Cool. With that, let's go into the chapter itself. We've got some stuff to talk about with Sazed and Spook here. And they we find them in the Lord Ruler's Cavern and our group of Alrian, Breeze, and everyone kind of adjusting to living and moving all the troops into this area, this cavern that we'd found with all these supplies, arranging tables, kind of getting everyone in real gradually without trying to signal any serious movements, even though they've ha- they have, I think, 200 troops is what is the previous number. I believe so. Um, sounds right. Yeah, and, and they chat about what should be done about Quellian, and Spook suggests outright assassinating him. But Sazed suggests against that and instead wishes to move to undermine him. What you make of the kind of the decision here and the, the thought process? So this specifically is what I was talking about earlier when you mentioned what I thought about Sazed being emperor and being in line. Sure. This kind of decision making and level headedness is what we could expect from him in that position. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I don't know, it, it's a sophisticated plan and forward thinking plan. And it like, it, it's intelligent, it's smart, it's not reactionary or emotional. And that's exactly what you want out of a leader of an entire like populace. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think that that's a very smart move. And it's important to remember, too, and consider that. And I I want to bring this up because I think it's a theme that circles back a couple of times inside of this week, even is that Spook is a 17, 18 year old boy still. You know, he's he's a young dude and he in that same naivete doesn't consider some of these things and doesn't even consider the implications of some of his actions as we find later. So. You know, it is it is a very interesting spot that we find ourselves in with Spook. But I agree with you on the side of Sazed where he does have enough faculty for sure and enough consideration that he could be a leader. He definitely has all of those capabilities and qualities. However, he is not in the place to be a leader. Yeah, <laughs> he's very much on, the, on a very different side of that fence at the moment. So speaking of Spook. Mm-hmm. I'm going to probably mention it a few times throughout this episode, but I think it's important to remember that he is constantly in conversation with this Kelsier being that he's talking to. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that this is the same entity that was Zane's God. We know for a fact that he is interacting with it much more than what we see. Because we we only get a couple little bits of conversation between him and Kelsier, but it's mentioned that he's like basically constantly talking to him, and he's getting used to having him in the, in his head, and like it seems like we're only exposed to a little bit of it. So that sort of suggestion of assassination could that have been born from pressure from this god character, which we know talking to Zane was constantly saying like kill him. So basically everybody, like maybe that's an influence that we have to consider when we're talking about Spook's decision making. What gets complicated is trying to keep that hidden from us while still being in Spook's point of view. 
I think the important thing to even clarify here just a little bit is the fact that we are mostly sitting at this point in Sazen's point of Correct. view from almost all this chapter, right? So there's a good chance, to your point, is that he might be talking to Kelsier right now. Even at the end of last week when he starts to mention, like, some hope and he just, he has a weird vibe about him when he's when talking with, since he started talking with Kelsier, especially from Sazen's perspective and Breeze's even, they're starting to have those suspicions build up. And while I don't think that that's something that they actively are pursuing at the moment i think we as readers are left to actively pursue that thought mm-hmm. in this moment especially when we get into the i think it's chapter 34 35 after the part break because that's when it really kind of becomes a we go from sazed to spook and within the same chapter perspective wise so so before i continue down this path of like making that mm-hmm. my main assumption i don't want you to like give anything away as far as oh no obviously you won't you're good at that you've had a lot of experience in me like trying to trick you into giving me more information is there anything that i'm glaringly missing that would point against that being a valid theory i don't think so okay cool not that i can think of immediately i mean the only thing is like what are the similarities between the two? You know, like how do you draw the lines between spook and Zane? Mm-hmm. So that would be kind of the meta question. Why doesn't everyone hear a ghost in their head? So fair. last week we had talked about citizens, you know, the citizens rather Quellian's use of Kelsier and religion of the survivor as a tool by which to encourage and motivate the citizenry through self rule and, and, kind of like utilizing that as this tool to rule them. And Breeze seems to suggest that he wouldn't have taken it that far, that Kelsier himself would not have taken it that far as to kill the nobility and to have kind of broken a lot of these lines. And Spook feels pretty similarly about how it's all been twisted. Again, this is kind of a note that Sanderson's clearly pointing us to with intent of religion versus actuality and practice and kind of coming through. I think that this is maybe the biggest flag in the ground for this issue so far inside of this novel to me. It is. And what gets even more complicated about it and interesting about it is that Sazed, our religious scholar, is once again finding himself in this position where he agrees with Quellian regarding Kelsier, or at least can't find a contradiction in the words being used, despite the misinterpretation of the spirit of the message, supposedly. Like, everyone's pointing to it as a misinterpretation, but I'm still mm-hmm. not entirely convinced that Kelsier would disagree either because it it talks about I I can't remember if it was a logbook or if it was just a Sazed's kind of monologue inner monologue talking about how Kelsier talked about a deep rooted hatred of the nobleman and that doesn't get addressed very much especially in those terms. Yeah, I, I think that this gets back to something that we've talked in previous books. I don't remember if it's in this novel as explicitly as you're saying, but I do think that it's talked about. And that's where I think I also pose the question of like, would Sazed have let Breeze be a part of the group if he knew that he was a full-blooded nobleman, if he knew that that was his lineage? Given given this text and what we're seeing with this, I would say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but- it, it's seeming less and less so. Right. It, it, it it certainly is. It's seeming a lot less and less so. But at the same time, that could be why, we'll get to it later, but why Kelsier, quote unquote Kelsier, talking to Spook 
talks about how he never really liked Breeze. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Right. Right. There's some intent there and there's some there's some questions as well. So mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that it's something that is is very difficult to nailed down at the moment and i think the the book is kind of playing with your expectations but we do have an understanding of kelsier of course i mean we've only we only have that one book really to get to know and understand kelsier on a base level and as such we know way more about kelsier than the people who worship him as a religious figure do you know what That's i mean true. we have way more of an inside track there as as the readers dramatic irony is heavy and i don't know he obviously wouldn't be as intense of a ruler as quellian but there is a question of how far would he go i think still that exists there is but yeah it's feeling less wholesome the more and Mm -hmm. more that we're getting into it and maybe that's an intentional kind of twist of the expectation through just these conversations and like pointing out the very specific details of what Kelsier has said in the past to twist the perspective. I, I think to add to that just a little bit too, it's important to note that Kelsier really did kind of change his tune a little bit very near the end. It felt like he was kind of underdeveloped in his thought process because of the way that he eventually comes to treat Ellen in those final moments. You know, like he he comes to decide to spare him and to actually fight to save him because he knows that Vin loves him. And so there are a couple of things that indicate that he probably would have changed. He may have just not met the right people to have encouraged that change. He did that him. through gritted teeth mm-hmm. as a sh- like as a gesture for Vin. I don't know if it was a gesture so much as an understanding of what it would do to Vin to have him killed. You know what I mean? He goes out of his way to make sure that he is not hurt yeah he does he does kind of come to terms with that in those moments through gritted teeth but i think especially in reflection and i think especially in a reread once you understand it seems as though i'm not saying that he's coming to terms with well maybe there are some good ones and the bad ones i think that he is at the very least understanding that maybe i should be evaluating people as people and that's a consideration that he hadn't spared before because all of the the noblemen that he'd met had mostly been pieces of shit with the exception of breeze of whom he didn't know as a nobleman you know so it's like there's this weird dichotomy of like treating people like people he likes breeze who is this straight-blooded nobleman and like thinks that he's a good member and a good friend there are complexities with kelsier that didn't get worked out fully before he died unfortunately and, and those have been latched on to as this religion by these groups I think where things really break down between Kelsier's like actual ideals and the ideals propped up are one of nuance, certainly. Mm-hmm. And that's the fact that anybody like the idea that anybody with noble blood would be considered a full blown nobleman and should be treated as such. But we know that Kelsier was a champion of the Ska Mystics, which mm-hmm. are necessarily noble blood. Which, like, his issue with the noblemen were the noble people that were standing and oppressing the Ska, not the fact that they had noble lineage. It was more to do with their position and their disposition above the rest of the populace. Does that track? Uh Uh-huh. Cool. Yep. 
that seems like a weird thing for you to not expound upon, but I'm going to trust you. <sighs> well, and we can okay. continue. That's fine. That's fine. It's a okay. I trust you. I understand how complicated these books and these stories are, and I'm a okay with like that can get into muddy territory as far as spoilers go. So let's move forward. I think there is always another secret. So (laughs) Sazed in this moment remains a kind of sad version of himself, absolutely lost between all these moments of trying to bring his group together and wrestling with his sad boy self at the same time. He in quote here says in the past, logic and thought had always been his refuge. However, his emotions didn't respond to logic. It's such a like it's such a chewy moment here for our boy. What would you would you think about this? So what I'm wrestling with with this question is if it's not emotion, what's mm-hmm. it a refuge from? Is it stress? Like you would think that the refuge that he takes would be a refuge from something emotional. Grounding mm-hmm. himself in logic and thought would be I would think a respite from out of control emotions, but is stress considered an emotion or is it something entirely different? And that's what he's grounding himself from. Because I think it's just a deeper emotion. You know what I mean? Like quantifying, he's never experienced such a deep and profound loss that it's a little bit different. Okay. And so I, I think that I don't think that you're wrong. I just think that it's a matter of, of depth in particular. I think what the code is trying to get at is before when he was stressed or when he faced adversity in different moments inside of these novels, we've seen him turn to the texts. We've seen him turn to refrains of religions to bring hope to other people. We've seen him take to books to try to find solutions to problems through searching through the well of ascension, the prophecies of the terrorists and like all of the other texts that he had access to. So I think that what he's saying is that usually research and to some degree, I mean, you you can say what you will about this this response, but to some degree, reality has been like his tool to address problems. And that's just gone out the window with a what feels like a deeper issue because he can no longer rely on because what's been called into question is his logic and his thoughts entirely. OK, I can get behind. That. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I and and that's why I think that this is such a powerful moment is because it's like this is really kind of the exposing of the nerve in a big way of why. And even when the conversation progresses a little bit further, there's like spook mentioning Tindwill, which I think is huge. And that's like she acted this way. And for him, that's this moment of wow. Spook is such he's becoming emotionally intelligent and like recognizing this when I didn't. But at the same time, I think that's an acknowledgement of this teenager is pointing to the teenage thing, the emotional thing and says its emotional state is more responsive to that as an answer, as a response. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to say that it's the right thing. It's just a thing. Yeah, this is making me realize that the existence of this phantom for the lack of a better term for spook. I don't believe it's Kelsier. Like, I I think that's probably clear by the way that I'm like skirting around calling him Kelsier, but it's making me not trust or not, not put so much trust in spook as much as I would have, or as much as I want to, 
in this because I'm constantly thinking, are these insights actually from spook or are they like interjections from this Kelsier figure pushing him towards something to say like a manipulation? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's breaking down trust in the character and I don't really like that. It, it's interesting. I, I don't know if I read the Tindwill bits that way, if that makes sense. But I do ask questions in my own head about the conversation about Kelsier being with them in this moment. That's where I feel like he's being pushed. I don't, to me, it doesn't feel as though the Kelsier thoughts take the forefront. Or rather, in, in, in the case of Tindwill, in the case of these emotional responses, and even in the case of past events it feels very much like spook is trying to relate to his friend more than it is when he's mentioning things like kelsier's looking over them and like that stuff feels floaty religious i I have the exact opposite feeling on Mm. that one because really this feels so articulate and so profound Mm. whereas the other one it feels like he could have gone a little bit farther to be a little bit more clear about what was actually happening to him but sure. he's just not he's not that articulate of a person and he doesn't quite know exactly what to say in order to convey the information that he has to say it to get him to understand what he's talking about. You know, I, I can agree on that front on, on the front of it feels more articulate, but I also feel like it feels more spook like the like talking about Tindwell in that way feels more like an 18 year, a 17 year old, a 16 year old in his age range. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it feels like, a, well, she was she was a logical one. She loved studying and she loved a lot of the things you did. She she enjoyed talking about the biographies and the leaders and that just like pings and saves its brain and sets him off in a track. I don't know That's that true. that feels like like the Kelsier voice. You know, what's what's the what's the quote that even that Sazed says to himself here? I'm finding it real quick. However, the fact that Spook had been the one to make such an astute observation gave Sazed pause. It was a very clever way of looking at things. Instead of contradicting him, Spook had offered a possible explanation. So to, so to me, it was like because he knew right here. Here's the quote itself that it's referencing your woman, the other keeper, Tindwell. I heard her talk about religion. She didn't think very much of it. I'd have thought that maybe you wouldn't talk about religion anymore because that might be what she'd have wanted, which makes it feel like he's like they had a conversation and they came out on the other side of their relationship being like religion doesn't make sense. Here it is because she was so logical. So I I don't feel like that is a manipulation necessarily. It feels like something that Spook could come to the conclusion of on his own. That's true. But if it's something that very pointedly gets sazed, that feels like like a manipulation. Yes, I I understand exactly where you're coming from. I just have this feeling from the language that it feels more like Spook than the assertions relating to the Kelsier ghost. That's fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Entirely, mm-hmm. I just, it's always going to be in the back of my mind that there is potentially something pushing him in a direction that isn't necessarily natural. Or And, um, and that's that's fair, because yeah. we've been pushed that way before. That's the entire well of ascension, is we were mm-hmm. pushed to get Vin to the well, and that was manipulation from Ruin entirely. So, Right. I guess, I guess my point is, can I trust this character growth from this character anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Especially in, like, now we're now we're finally in his head and we're finally in Spook's 
perspective and like we get more spook awesome i'm excited I'm, it's great i don't trust any of it anymore <laughs> oh man except right. for when we're well, like actually in his head you know mm-hmm. which is always fun cool with that we end with sazed beginning to tear apart the next religion in his portfolio and moving closer to as he says the truth yeah we've got a very tenacious sad boy Mm-hmm. don't we his, his mm-hmm. sad work is never done you know it's it's tough in truly in this case speaking from experience writing a depressed character is perhaps the most difficult thing it's the most difficult thing that you could try to write a character as a character trait truly because a depressed character by the very nature of being depressed is inactive they don't want to do anything and so to give Sazed this trait of needing to peel through these religions at the very least gives him a base motivation to do things because often when I go through cycles of depression I'm not motivated to do shit most people aren't that's the way that depression works so that makes for a very uninteresting read it yeah. is why the novel that I finished in 20 late 2021 early 2022 won't see the light of day because it's so fucking hard to make that interesting <laughs> so yep Hmm. Sazed's a great example. There's another character in a book that I read recently that's another great example that I won't make mention of. But yeah. It's, you know, it's it's such a hard thing to do and I'm glad that Sanderson has done it so well here because it does portray something very necessary based for these characters as well. Yeah, I agree. And I I think you took some time railing on it for a little bit, but I think it works well in Sazed's case, the fact that we had mm-hmm. that time jump. Yes. And we get to see him kind of already gone through the the long valley of depression. And at this point, he's kind of at the point where he's starting to maybe have the opportunity to climb out of it. Yes. He, yeah. he sees opportunity as opposed to when you're just kind of stuck in the in the valley, to your point. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great comparison. The other comparison I would make is to the lead of Midnight Mass. The story opens on a car crash that the main character that you're following for most of the show is the driver in and kills another person while drunk driving. And then you cut to three or four years later when he's out of jail for the manslaughter charge that he gets. And you skip the valley, but you still get the throes of like what he feels. And mm-hmm. it's a very smart way to handle it because you can... You can still embody the impact of depression without really reeling in on the live in the moment affect. Right. Totally. That's why my entire book would have to be rewritten. In addition, at this point, it would be too similar to Midnight Mass. With that, we go to chapter 32. We've got our logbook here. Allomancy, obviously, is of preservation. The rational mind will see this. For in the case of Allomancy, net power is gained. It is provided by an external source. Preservation's own book. So this seems very clearly calling back to, I think, a passage from earlier. Calling energy the body of a god. I I think that's the exact term used, but something very similar to that, if not exactly those words. Does that does that ring a bell? It does. And unfortunately, I Kindle is being a piece of shit. Hold, please. I think it's talking about the black smoke in one of the rooms. 
So, it's all the way back in chapter 14. Rune's consciousness was trapped by the Well of Ascension, kept mostly impotent. That night, we, when we discovered the well for the first time, we found something we didn't understand, a black smoke clogging one of the rooms. Though we discussed it after the fact, we couldn't decide what that was. How could we have possibly known the body of a god, or rather the power of a god, since the two are really the same thing? Rune and preservation inhabited power and energy in the same way a person inhabits flesh and blood. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking of. So glad good to I see read that, it all off to you. Yeah. Good to see that kind of circle back a little bit in a more mm-hmm. contextual way. It also begins to provide this context and conversation around where these abilities come from. It starts to for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's no, no secret. We'll get the other ones in the next two. Yeah. With that Almancy being a preservation does that make sense to you? I mean, hemolurgy being of ruin makes sense, given the context. Uh, I don't quite get the obvious nature of it. And I don't quite think that it makes sense, given the context, that hemolurgy and ruin are interwoven together. It doesn't... I'm, I'm failing to grasp the obvious interconnectedness that you seem to be. Hmm. Okay aware of sure sure i i guess while we can focus on hemolurgy when we get there more i was thinking about more of the connection between preservation and allomancy do you see that one as obvious or not like what what do you make of the statement of it being obviously is a preservation it it doesn't make sense to me at all i don't okay it doesn't feel obvious to you no okay cool and it, it just feels like there's something that i'm missing <laughs> There, there's a piece that I'm missing that would maybe unlock my ability to see this as like the obvious connection. But I feel like he's explaining the reason why it's obvious and mm-hmm. it's still going over my head. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like we're missing like a detail there. So I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go into it too far, but I do at the very least want to draw the Christian comparison to the Eucharist a little bit here which is the body of a God providing you with something, you know, as like a renewing of something. And this feels very much Eucharistic in its own right. That thing that dangles in the back of your throat. No, 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 no. Yeah. I guess for, for folks who don't know or weren't raised incredibly Catholic, what the Eucharist is, is ultimately it's a sanctification of a representation of the body and blood of Christ for Christians of whom believe in that to sort of be the a renewing of faith in mm-hmm. in in the way that Catholics kind of look at it. So it's it's a way for them to renew their vow to Christ and basically say, hey, by doing this, I'm taking part in the body and blood of Christ like he did at the Last Supper with his disciples. So effectively this isn't the same, but it evokes similar tones. And it's hard to ignore that from a proclaimed Christian author. Right. The point here being, though, is that it does have this nature. Alamancy is this nature as suggested of sacrament to it. Like it, it and it's not suggesting that Alamancy <laughs> in it of itself is like a holy art of worshiping preservation. It's just that it has a direct connection between preservation and the magic form it's much more scientific so 
we start off this chapter with Telden, one of Ellen's old drinking buddies from the first book. I, I think his inclusion is a great way for us to get an eye on what many of the Final Empire's nobility did after its collapse and where and how they scurried off from the unstable governments of the central dominance. What'd you make of how that conversation around government went? Well, I think much in the way that Kelsier's message has been religiously misinterpreted and twisted mm. in different ways. The philosophical musings of Ellen and his drinking buddies had kind of manifested themselves in very starkly different forms of governmental ideals between this guy and Josties and Ellen. Like after they're all separated and after they all go their separate ways, I mean, we we see we see it all from Ellen's lens from the jump. But he's the only one that seems to really be living out exactly what they were talking about back in their high towers. I I think that's such a great thing to bring up here because it does really feel like that. It does. It does have that sense and sensibility about it of the none of the drinking buddies did it right outside of Ellen and Ellen tried the most purely Jastis tried. And you can assume the other two, including Teldon didn't do anything because it was the five of them. Right. And so there were five drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've got one, two, three. Okay. So four of them didn't do it right in total. And even Ellen failed with his original intent. Still managed to manifest a version of what he wanted, but given the circumstances, he's stuck in a very different loop at the moment. So we can forgive him a little bit, I guess, but I think it's really a matter of how quickly you come to realize that you have to have concessions. Mm-hmm. to the ideals right. and yeah. ellen went <laughs> ellen lasted the longest before he's like all right something has to give we've got to like do what's best i don't want to say that it's pure and holy but i do want to say that there's an argument that at the very least jazzy's did a good job but the problem is is that he was almost too pure given the description that we got from him in that moment in the okay. tent in the world of ascension so yeah yeah I, I think he was I think broken how, by the like slaughter of his family. That was yes. his turning point. Yeah. He abandoned it at that, at that point. As far as like the pure in, in a similar way, he sought power to pull off the thing that he wanted to that Ellen has since achieved power, received power and is now doing it's fucked up. I hate mm-hmm. that comparison, but I think it is totally ignorant to ignore that Josties and Ellen have a similar path. The difference is the power that they found. And I think an even more apt comparison and similarity between, between the two is the fact that Ellen was so appalled by the idea that Josties would, would march an army of Coloss on a city with threat of slaughtering innocence within that city to the Coloss. It's exactly what he's threatening and exactly what he's doing now. But we see it from his lens of, I have to do this for the greater good. So it's okay. That's what yeah. Jasty's got executed for. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't remember if you remember me mentioning this. I thought this happened in Hero of Ages. I didn't think that Jostis died until this book. I thought that his Coloss army was stolen from him then, mm-hmm. not 
not at the end of well. And I think that's what messes me up so much is that there's just this it's 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 the intent uh, of the power that he stole and for the immediate purposes, the immediate purposes that differentiate the two. He Jostes, King Jostes, is still functioning just like Emperor Elland, but the difference is is that Emperor Elland has the faculty over his power and his capabilities because it's him, the Mistborn, that's all powerful, versus Jostes had to prop up the power how he could by manipulating through an economic system, which isn't wholesome. It's not a good thing that he did. He tricked the Coloss potentially into believing that they could be human. But Isn't that almost yeah. more impressive, though? It is more impressive. There's there's no doubt that it's more impressive. <laughs> Differently impressive, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to focus on this too much, but it does feel like an interesting thing now that we can talk about and compare, especially with the third lens of Teldin being the guy who basically wussed out of the whole thing and was like, it was fun to talk to you guys. Like, I had a good time. I was your buddy, but like, I'd rather be <laughs> safe and comfortable than uncomfortable and pushing boundaries. Right. Which say what you will about Josties, but at the very least he tried. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately in this moment, Ellen is easy on him compared to Josties. That's fucked up to me. I think. Yeah, it is. But I do appreciate how this turns into a conversation about his marriage to Vin and a much more kind of friendly turn. You know, again, he's being very friendly towards Selden, this dance. This wouldn't even be the place to do something very intimidating or like stab your friend you know, through the front. It, it's nice to see that his intent mostly matches up, despite him obviously following that that cowardly path that we were talking about before. But what would you make of the notes on Vin? Is this the point where... It's called into question whether or not Vin killed the Lord Ruler, or was that with Yeoman? I think that's here, I think. Pretty sure. These kind of blend together for me a little bit. Those, yeah, it's fair. Like, these conversations. I mean, the big accusation is that, like, Ellen became the Lord Ruler, right? And so that's another thing to contend with in this conversation, which... I think he's on that path. He pretty much did, yeah. Which is why I think later, well, I guess we'll talk about it right now, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, I guess. But I do want to double check here. Do, 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 do. It looks like it is with Yeoman. Yeah. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what did he talk? I don't remember the conversation. I don't remember the differences. I don't remember the conversation about Vin that he had here as opposed to with I mean, it's really just it was mostly about marriage and like not inviting your close friend and oh, like a couple, yeah. couple of different things so he was like no we had a court wedding which is basically what happened he was you know. barely invited to that wedding vin didn't <laughs> tell him he just vin but, showed up and said we're married now and says it like yes, says it make queen. it so says it said yes queen and then it happened yeah um, like ellen had a wedding surprised upon him I mean, happily so, but yeah, yeah. he accepted, Yeah, but mm-hmm. like they didn't plan that or he didn't, he wasn't involved in the plan. Right. Right. Which I feel like is true for a lot of grooms, but uh, at least they fair. know it's happening. That's a fair enough point. I do want to move into talking about yeoman. So let's talk about yeoman for a second. We've got, 
we we meet yeoman of course this is the first time and he's so bold that he wears a bead of atm on his forehead what do you think about their conversation about the right to rule as well as their sort of philosophical sparring that kind of goes back and forth and the offer to allow yeoman to continue his own rule what'd you make of the whole the whole sequence this felt like a tease and it, it, mm-hmm. I'll, I, I say it that way because it feels like this is being set up to be a very prominent, not quite adversary, but counterpoint in for it's this really proper, respectable, philosophically mm-hmm. and in, intellectually that Ellen gets to like, like you said, spar against. That's a great way to put it. It's a really fun dynamic and it feels cut short. And I can only imagine that this is a very well fleshed out character that we're going to see a lot more of going forward between Ellen and Yeoman. So my hope is that means that he'll be a king under Ellen, much like Set would be. Whether or not whether or not that's giving Set the city and giving Yeoman something of a more prominent position as a result of fulfilling like both promises we'll see i don't know i don't know it just he he feels like a very very fun character in comparison to alan and and he does promise something very different i i think it's so fun to have these you know and i i don't want to paint them so explicitly because we kind of have four antagonists we we have so many antagonists in these novels but if you think about the kind of different ones that we've had we had in the first book it was pretty much the lord ruler for the most part almost exclusively in this book or sorry in well we move into straff a little bit of set a little bit of penrod and sort of the well as an ambiguous antagonist that's kind of sitting in the background mm-hmm. lurking in the distance in this book, we've got Quellian and Yeoman as these kind of dueling and, and Ruin as these like trio of antagonists that all kind of have their own thing. And Yeoman is really interesting because he is that philosophical enemy. He's he's one that cannot be beat. Well, that maybe can be beat with pure force, but that that would be a philosophical loss in the way that he would approach treating his population to say like, this man is not a good man because of the things that he did to get here. He is... He's a truly profound enemy in that way. And I think that's what makes him such a fun foil for Ellen in, in a big way. Because I think that I, I think that what's so crazy is that old Ellen, rather Ellen from the well, would have done pretty well against Yeoman in a very different way. But current Ellen has gotten so almost reliant on the show of force that he's forced to revert to his old tactics but that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. His other way. Yeah. I think it makes him stronger. I I think it would, I think it will make him stronger to Mm -hmm. be able to hone that ability again and really like have this, have this chess opponent, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what makes him so interesting, especially when they're like bringing up the philosophers back and forth about like, well, uh, Gawkier or whatever the fuck that guy's name is. Gallingskaw, sorry, not Gawkier would be just as good, though. You should consider using that. But Gallingskaw or Durton and like they bring up book titles and they're throwing them back and forth. It's yeah. The the fact that Ellen gives him a better argument against him 
proves to me that one, he's enjoying this. And two, this is good for him. Mm -hmm. This is what he needs. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think we get even a more refined point on this in a moment, but I would be remiss if I didn't at the very least talk about moving in Ellen's perspective to one of the sweetest moments of the series to date. And that is Ellen and Vin's first dance. And there's so much beauty and serenity and poignancy in this moment that this time when I was reading it today on the couch to write these notes, it actually, I was, I was on the verge of tears reading it again, because it is such a, such a great moment in which they, they come to a lot of realizations that we'll talk about in a second, but just talking about the dance itself, it was, it's so good to see this kind of accumulation and this sort of release valve on this pressure for that's been going mm. on for so long. You know, I, I think of the same way, like you can have will they, won't they couples and like sex is that release valve where it's like, okay, they will. And this is their release valve, even though we know that they've had sex before, because this has been the thing that, you know, Vin's been looking forward to forever. So much so he brings, he, he busts out the book. Mm-hmm. And Vin is so caught up and distracted by this moment, and that the like the fact that it's actually this dance that she's like been waiting for and looking forward to, and had thought was kind of lost to the past, and she overlooks this joke in it. So she she comes across as this kind of uptight and uh, just. Un, not unreasonable and not naggy, but like verging on that sort of feeling. She's like picking at him. She's like, she's picking directly at wounds. You know, I don't think for the most part, she understands that this is a joke and that this is a callback to all of the time they spent at those dances because she's, I think she eventually gets it. I think she, she does, does eventually get it. Eventually, but, but until then, mm-hmm. we don't see that side of Vin very often. Of this, uh, this right. kind of naggy personality that's like picking at him, like mm-hmm. because because it doesn't feel like it's joking. Eventually, it does. Eventually, like she realizes it, and it's this this relief well, I, a little bit. So, on the other side of that, I want to I want to clarify that there is. There's an element that pops up later that I think is important to mention. This is all going on during the dance, but they have this very serious conversation, right, about identities and and that and what they were before and what they are now and sort of the necessity of these moments. I don't want to skip over your thoughts at all, but I want to say that this is something that comes up here and it feels like this is Ellen simultaneously admitting to this old side for the first time in a long time and it comes across in this joke that he's planning but she takes it seriously because she is thinking in this moment very seriously about who she was and who she should be now and who she is now and how she's kind of how she's changed and she's no longer letting that mistborn side just dominate her she's merging the two together really and she has successfully done so so i just i, I want to make mention of that because i think I to your point i i can't fucking believe you <laughs> What we went back and forth on this forever for hours I know. for literal mm-hmm. hours in the last book. I know. And this is exactly what I was talking about when we were talking about that well, fucking dress. No, but but the point of that dress is that she was merging the two, but not in the right way. The what dress not in the right way. Dress, that original dress is subservient to the idea that it's she needs to do it's a physical things. It's a physical manifestation no. of her blending of those personalities. 
It it simultaneously is, but she does not think of it in that way. The the tailor is doing that to the dress to make it that way. It is not something that she herself is. She's not allowing herself in that moment to think. She's given an out in that moment. She, she didn't realize to, it was a possibility. She perked up and said, you can right. do something like that. I don't deny that. But I think the important thing is to say that she wasn't interested in the dress at all until it had misborn capabilities. Right. Because it was it was snubbing half of her personality. But I guess I don't think it's so much that it's snubbing half of her personality in that moment because she didn't care about the personality merge. She cared about being a mistborn, not about being a full person. We've it had did, this it argument. Does, it does Less ultimately <laughs> serve. It does ultimately serve as a merger. This is important, though, because this is where that moment ties together, where she mentions it explicitly because she even calls back to like different moments in which she calls back to the entire last book as her ignoring this. And so I think that it's really important to point out that dress is like she wasn't thinking about the dress as a utility to go to a ball, to go do things, to show up and be pretty. She was yes, thinking she was. about it as that a cover for her. No, no, no. That wasn't the point of the text in the moment. The point of the text in the moment is I can cover that I am the protected mistborn. I can cover and be pretty and still have all my weapons on me. Isn't that just what you said? No, the difference is she can be pretty. So here's here's the difference. Being pretty and being ready is one thing. In this case, she was just being ready and being pretty was a side effect. That's that what wasn't the side effect. She was directly looking at it like a side effect. That's the difference. No, because now she she's was, admitting to herself. She was excited about going. Ability. She, she was excited about going shopping for a dress. But she was hesitant. No, she wasn't. She explicitly yes, she was. was. Oh, sorry. You're right. You're right. She was. She was excited about going shopping for the dress. But she was hesitant because she felt this pressure to be the misborn, and this allowed her to be both. And she didn't realize it was a possibility until the tailor mentioned it. But she was so excited after they mentioned it that mm. she could be both. You're. You're right. In, in the circumstance, in that immediate sense. However, all of her actions were still defined by her being a mistborn. It's not like she was going out and wearing a dress casually or even choosing to do so. She was forced to go dress shopping. That's a fact. She was forced to go, go dress true. shopping by Tindwell because she was like, you can't wear what you're wearing anywhere. But in um, that conversation with Tindwell, she admits that she's very excited to go dress shopping. In, and she doesn't say it out is, loud. She, she says does. it in her head. She says no, it to Tindwell. No, she doesn't say it out loud. Okay, that doesn't there's, matter. There's it no, doesn't yeah. matter. We know contextually it, that it she's excited to be there. It does matter because she's, she's saying here that you had to learn things like I did. But please don't become someone else, Ellen. You can be both Emperor and Ellen the man. This is the same, this is the same problem. And she goes through this mental reflection of who she was in the previous book. I feel like... You're agreeing with me from the last book while simultaneously defending yourself for disagreeing with me in the last book. No, I, I, I stand <laughs> by my statement that I don't think that she'd fully accepted what she was going to be, especially in the moment when she tears apart. Like she has to tear apart the dress. It's unfortunate. It, it happens. She what do you mean she's excited about it. <laughs> She's not really she's not excited for the dress. She's excited for the potential for the dress to also be a utility to be misborn. She doesn't do that to this dress. 
I disagree with you entirely. She I don't doesn't understand do that to this why dress. we like. No, she doesn't do that to di- to this dress. But I I disagree that she like disliked the previous dress or tore apart the previous no, dress. I I'm not saying that she disliked the previous dress. My point is is that you can have before she wasn't acknowledging the two sides. She yes, wasn't she acknowledging was. it. No, she wasn't. Yes, she she was, was denying the feminine side. This was the one no, moment wasn't. in which she felt like she could express the feminine side a little bit. However, the feminine side was still subservient to the Mistborn side. I disagree. The ability to be a Mistborn totally was still disagree. priority. The ability to be a Mistborn was still priority number one. I don't. I don't think that the necessity necessity to have the Mistborn side makes it necessarily more important than the other one i think they can coexist she she and that's what she was looking for okay and didn't even consider the fact that they could both be i totally agree with the first 40 the first 40 percent of what you said it's when you hit the back part that i don't agree it she had not considered it yes but she also still, even when considering it, didn't come to that conclusion because she still was only focused on the utility. That's the entire book is her focusing because, on utility because the focus on the utility was the one part that was missing of the thing that she was really excited about. She needs right. both. She but, needs to but blend she, them, but she still doesn't even when she gets the dress. Like she gets the dress, which appears to blend both, but she still has to be the Mistborn first. She still has to be on edge. She's validated by the plot. She's val her decision is validated, but the character that you want to see Vin become is not validated in that moment. She's validated by circumstance. That's that's the reality. Like because she so here's the thing, PJ. If nothing happened at that meeting, she would have been prepared with all those knives for for an eventuality that she thought might happen, right? And it would have been like, oh, I could have just worn a regular dress instead. Like I didn't need to be this person, and that would have been holistically better for her but character because she, it would no, have it reinforced this she would have idea. been so stressed the entire time that she'd be unprepared. No, you're you're no. My point was is that her paranoia was validated. Right. Her paranoia is validated in that moment, which means that she cannot just wear a dress and be a person. She has to always be prepared to be a weapon. But being prepared to be a weapon allows her to relax a little bit more and be a person. Whereas she would be okay. so much more on edge being unprepared for this. For, that for point, any. Let's let's talk about the quote then. This entire section, right, leans on this quote, this idea, this divided personality, which is you had things to learn like I did, but but please don't become someone else. Ellen. You can be both Emperor Ellen the Emperor and Ellen the Emperor and Ellen the Man are two very different people, just like Vin the Knife and Vin the Valette are very different people. Yes, you can you can be both. And she I don't was, I don't understand why that's an argument against what I'm saying. The the argument. The validation of the assassination attempt happening means that her paranoia was founded. And because her paranoia was founded, that means that the idea of the dress being a flourish or a necessity on top of her character, like just being like a, a, a poof. She was she was a courtly poof, as she self-describes, just like Ariane. It, it, it invalidates the idea that she should 
get to be a poof when she wants to. And so in, instead, she's forced to be this knife all the time. And that's a necessity of the plot. That makes sense. But it, it's not. But that's exactly what she's saying here, that you can be both at the same time. Be both. What she's also realizing or what she's trying to encourage Ellen to be is to not just be Ellen to the emperor, because that's all he's being right now. Just like how how Vin did have a moment in the dress shop. This is this is where our divergence happens in the dress shop. I think that's a great moment. I think that is exactly what should happen. The moment you go to the assassination scene is when all of the dress shop stuff is invalidated because it's like, oh, I should have just shown up in a miscloak. There's no reason that I should have done this. This is actually inconvenient, except for it broke in a couple of places that worked. Like, it, it's because there wasn't a positive experience with the dress before. She never does it again for the rest of the book. Why would she fly around in a dress? It doesn't make any sense. It's not because she didn't, she she didn't have a position that. where she needed to. That's the point. So what I'm saying is, well, there, is by there the wasn't there wasn't the, an event where it called for it for the plot's sake. It works great for the character's sake. It doesn't. But if there's not there, if there's not an event to wear a dress, it doesn't make That's sense to wear a dress choice. anyway. No, it could because you want to do it as a person. That's the difference between a character writer and a plot writer. I entirely this, disagree this is with a you. Core. Wholeheartedly, I am so opposed to exactly what you're saying. This, this is, <laughs> I, and what I'm what I'm trying to extract this from is is a plot perspective. Vin, Vin as a character is forced to make decisions because of the plot. Vin as a person would make other choices. Right. I, I, I get everything you're saying. I just okay. don't get the jump that you're making. That says that these two shouldn't coexist in the previous book. Like, I, no, I, they should coexist. They did not fully coexist. One superseded the other. Yeah, I disagree with that. that. They didn't. That's what I did. Well, disagree with. And, and that's because and that that's was the core point that I'm trying to get at. Because I agree in the dress shop. And the moment that you leave the dress shop and you go to the meeting, it becomes entirely different. That's where it shifts. Because you never see her in a dress again for the rest of the book. You never see her go into fashion. You never see her even think about it. She needed to have the, like, she, she. That's the point that she's trying to make here is that you can make time to think about these things. I don't things. think you that's the point she's trying to make here. I don't think that's the point she's trying to make here at all. It's the opposite of the point that she's trying to make. She's saying that you should blend the two. I'm not you saying should that you shouldn't the blend the two. I'm saying that she she realized <laughs> she she treated the other side like it was bad for the rest of the book. Like she couldn't even acknowledge it because she became the knife and she could only be the hero of ages. That's that that is like I still disagree. Okay. Totally. And I think we should just move on because we've had this argument twice now and it's gone long. Yeah, both but times. this is this is the end of the argument. It's not because we're, we're not well, any is. closer to agreeing with each other. Where's the line? So many book lines. Do, 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 do. Uh, this is literally this chapter, though. This literally ta- tackles this point. I agree. It tackles this point. <laughs> then what changed for Vin between then and now? I think Vin is looking at the dress shop as a revelation. Of when she realized she could blend the two together, and this that's her inspiration for telling Ellen to blend the two. Hmm. I think Vin is looking at the mistake that was only focusing on the immediacy of things like Zane and the Well of Ascension that was pounding in her head 
as the error and coming out on the other side and realizing, hey, I'm more than just a, I'm not a prophesied hero. And I was self-obsessed and an egotist as opposed to thinking that I was the only one who could do this thing. And therefore I have to make a change. And so she's acknowledging that change in the moment with the dress and she's being very self-confident. This whole book is an acknowledgement of change. Maybe because in the last section of the book that we read, whether or not it was legitimate is still up in the air, but she refers to herself as the hero of ages as sure. if she still believes it. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it was theatrics. I don't know what it was, but potentially she still believes she's the, she's the prophesized hero. Mm-hmm. But we know the hero of ages to kind of be a lie. Like that's the whole thing. We with do. the last book is the but hero of ages. She doesn't necessarily lie. know that yet. Contextually. I, th- what I think she knows that she was tricked, but she still referred to herself as the hero of ages. In the last book, before she last realized that she was tricked, this book. Are you sure? Maybe that was Ellen. I think they were just talking about the hero of ages. No, I think she was explicitly it, it, talking it might, about. It might have been Ellen calling his wife the hero of ages. That sounds more correct. Ah, no, Vin did say it. This was two weeks ago, but Ellen debunks it, and she agrees with him, being that this is the same destiny that was self-prescribed, and so she no longer. Well, it's not that she no longer thinks it, but at the very least, he attempted to debunk but the he idea. Did, she, sure. Yeah. I guess to to put a pin, pin a tail on the donkey, you look at the changing moment being the dress shop. I look at the changing moment for her acknowledging this being the end of the book when she realizes she's been lied to. And that's when she realizes that she's overextended herself. So those are those are different extension moments of the sides of Vin's personality. At the very least, we agree that there are sides of Vin's personality. Right. So to start, that's a good point. <laughs> but beyond that, <laughs> we don't agree. Needless to this say. This is a very fun conversation, though. I get frustrated. I, you get frustrated. I know we I'm talk in circles a little bit. <laughs> I'm not frustrated. I just think that the the tough part is I have a hundred percent context and how does one rationalize a hundred percent context with 65% context when, when you still have assumptions, you know, that are outlying. So Mm -hmm. sometimes that can be very difficult when there are things that I want to talk about, but I feel like part of, and this again is part of that, that whole feeling is my thought in this moment, reading the scene is that this is almost a hundred percent resolved. But you don't necessarily have that context. So how does one have a conversation that feels like it's important without having the it's resolved context? You know, does that make sense? It's a dance dance. Yeah, because now we're left to make assumptions. I do think, like I said, at the very least, I want to summarize because I know that I, I actually hold the unpopular opinion here. I think that in the dress in, in the dress shop, she realizes that there is a potential for these two sides to be one in the assassination scene that changes. And she makes that side subservient to the knife again. And she buries it again because it is not useful like being the knife is. And for the rest of the book, she goes through that experience. You don't think that in this moment, it feels like she's acknowledging that 
at the very least, she went through this trial and tribulation of her personality and the way that she felt divided between these two worlds. And Mm -hmm. as such, she is trying to relay that to Ellen so that he doesn't lose himself in the necessity of action that he finds himself in. Like we were talking about in the first couple of episodes, this nice necessity of the sacrifice of his ideology kind of at the altar of ideology that we were talking about in the first couple of episodes. So she's trying to rationalize that for him so that he doesn't lose everything that he stood for to become more like the Lord ruler than he might want to be despite acknowledging that maybe the Lord ruler did some things in an acceptable way. Mm -hmm. This is sort of a rubbing back and forth. Yeah, I'm with you. We talked about Vin. I want to make sure that we talk about Ellen. So I need something about from about Ellen from you. here. <laughs> I just want to talk about Vin. <laughs> well, I know. That's why, that's why I exploded here. I mean, Ellen is on a war path towards being the Lord ruler. Mm-hmm. And I think he needs, he needs a wake up call to really like get him to look at exactly what he and his philosophy buddies talked about because he is so caught up with the utilitarianism and the like the idea that he needs to save everyone and he he's getting caught up with that to the point where he's willing to kind of make con- make concessions which is important to do but he can't lose sight of the overall point <laughs> and the overall goal mm-hmm. because it, it is a slippery slope to lord rulerdom yeah I'd agree. And that it that is what she's also trying to help him avoid mm-hmm. is the slippery slippery slope down the side of your personality that is necessitated by reality versus the idealistic side of your personality that you would love to aspire to be. And that's sort of the balancing act here, the seesawing that we see between these characters in their novels. Regardless, regardless of where we stand on where the seesaw sits at any particular moment, at the very least, we can acknowledge that it's it's about this. These entire stories about are about seesawing between those two sides of you. The first book is about Vin learning to be learning to move away from being a street urchin and learning to be Valette and a misborn. The the second book is balancing a balancing act between can I be a noble woman potentially and this side of me that is overwhelmingly demanded as a knife. And then this book so far has shown that conversation with Ellen between how do I grapple with my ideology as this moralistic paladin and how do I grapple with the realities of needing to run an empire and save as many people as possible from a very good position of being an emperor. So needless to say, the dance ends this beautiful moment that we spent a lot of time arguing around and they make a dramatic exit out out the window dodging out into the night and extending an invitation to anyone who might want to leave before the siege begins i I love the sort of whoosh into the night kind of deal Mm -hmm. like i still think it'd be a lot of fun to see a mistborn just kind of suddenly take off at a very high speed without a very noticeable acceleration curve like just right it's a lot of g's you know that's one of the things that i've thought about since we've had our original argument about which elementic ability would you take is 
you kind of need something else to soak some of the the counter forces. Yeah. And there's some there's some slight cognitive explanations for the impact of allomancy on the brain, but regardless, like your body is going to feel that 0 to 100 acceleration depending on what you push mm-hmm. on. Especially because as stated, the exertion is at, at exactly your center of gravity. Mhm. So it's, it's not just what you're it's, pushing against. It's yeah. not distributed across your entire body. It is a point force at your center of gravity. Yeah, that would be that could be very nasty. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be really nasty. <laughs> it, it has it has a lot of potential to be really bad. <laughs> like if you accidentally pushed yourself against a bank vault, you'd have a bad time. <laughs> you'd have a really bad time. That force would snap you. Yep. Cool. Yep. With that, we go into chapter 33. We have our logbook here. Hemolurgy is of ruin. It destroys by taking abilities from one person and giving them to another in reduced amounts. Power is actually lost. In line with Rune's own appointed purpose, breaking down the universe into smaller and smaller pieces, hemolurgy gives great gifts, but at high cost. This whole thing is confusing to me because we have this scene early on this in this book where a terraceman is being like impaled with Mm -hmm. one of the inquisitors below them. And it seemed to me, and maybe it was intentionally improperly described. Obfuscating. Obfuscating. But it seemed to me that it was just the fact that they were terracemen that they were being targeted. Not not that they were ferricomists because there was a fairly large history of terrorismen that were like it was strictly terrorismen i think that were used in this ritual and says it is regarded as maybe the last ferricomist so as a note that you might pick up upon reread focusing a lot more on that section they're up in the Terrace Mountains. They're in that area. And we know that the Synod is dead. But are they dead? Or have they been held waiting to have their powers transferred? It is a Terraceman regardless. It's obfuscatious to not give the specific information of that person's class or what their abilities are. But that's because at this point, the idea is, can you connect the dots without knowing, you know, like the you're given the beginning hints of the mystery. Now it's okay. Well, why would they do that? What did they get? And now we've gotten over the course of the logbook connecting lines that show you, Oh, okay. So they're stealing abilities. So this isn't just a terrorist This is a ferrochemist and they're stealing abilities from the ferrochemist. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. That's fair. Yeah. I think that's the intent is to give you that sort of that cognitive question of what is going on here when you read it to see when you when you're able to assemble the mystery, kind of put it together. And I think this this section does a good job. So I don't feel like I spoiled anything because it's all at this point, it's all textual. Yeah, that's fair. So, yeah. Because they do explicitly say that spikes are used to steal things. We, they get very get, explicit about it during this section in the next yeah, during several next the next two sections, basically. Yeah, this is where we get into like the hemolurgy 
kind of deluge of information. So, yeah. And I, I think that in particular, the other thing that it defines is the sort of intent of ruin, right? Which is that his purpose is to break down the universe into smaller and smaller pieces. It's to literally ruin things. Ruin just feels like a bad dude. I mean, yeah. In general. One, one would argue. One one could definitely argue. So there's there's this idea of diminishment associated mm-hmm. with ruin. And it, it feels less... The way it's described feels less like destruction and more like diffusion. And that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. I'm I'm curious if the reason for describing it as destruction is simply not, I, I don't want to say alarmism because clearly it's a it's a bad force, but to make it more intense in our understanding of it, to draw those parallels a little bit more starkly. I don't know. I don't know. I think I think to a certain extent, the further you degrade something, the closer it gets to the idea of destruction. So it is like you're saying, kind of an escalation of the idea of ruin in the long term, if that makes sense. So like ruin as a force is degradation to the point of effective annihilation not total annihilation. I like that description. I like effective annihilation as a description. It's it's not it's not about the total sundering of everything. It's just about enough that everything is broken. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Like just the eventuality of like continuing. And that's why I think the dichotomy makes a lot of sense with that of the idea of preservation. And the extent to which that could extend. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. A lot to think about. I, uh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Just dropped a little, little bomb there and I'm going to run away from it. So we move to 10 soon. And I got to say that I love the visuals here. It feels cinematographic. As we think about this dog's body, the generational dislike and hatred of the other Chandra burrowing daggers into his fur with their eyes and and throwing those across the room from their various stone seats and and sort of the way this whole room is built in in the uh, trust warren and the first generation's kind of lumpy shadows looking down above from their blue lit alcoves. Just the whole thing evokes a very very clear image i i love it yeah everything about ten soons these chapters feel like interstitials remove like if you were to look at this book alone without taking into consideration the well of ascension like as a standalone piece this would feel very much like the black freighter sure yeah so to to that point, thing about Watchmen and the Black Freighter, this feels like you're I, I think it's a little bit less than the Black Freighter, where the Black Freighter is more of a metaphor for the plot. This is both a metaphor and the C plot simultaneously. Like this is both kind of an overarching idea of the persecution on this level, as well as being a C plot, like in a TV show. You know, it's it's kind of the it would be to your point the interstitials that would be like okay, so we're we're kept on the hook for this character, and we want to find out more, and we want to discover more, and we're we're left waiting week to week for like two minute snippets, kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to like keep this person going. So I, I agree with you, yeah, yeah. holistically. 
So, what was the term? Cinematographic. Cinematographic. Yeah. yeah. Cinema. Cinematographic. I'm sure Cinemat- it's actually cinematographic. Cin- cinematographic. Maybe. Who knows? Is it a real word? Yeah, it's definitely a real word. It's Cinemat- a verb tense. Cinematography. Yeah. Cinematographic. Yeah. 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 Totally. It sounds wrong. It doesn't it, sound like it, a real word. I mean, the reality is it's probably pronounced slightly different. But then we move into kind of the bigger scene moment here that happens. So we, we have all that beautiful scene setting that happens. And he turns and addresses the first, despite Ken Parr's protests over top of him, that this is supposed to be a judgment. He shouts the truth of the world outside and mentions all of these different things, the earthquakes, the outbounds, flooding, and everything else that's going on. And after a brief pause... One of the first generations asks for Kampar to proceed. And so the, his judgment is pronounced by the conjurer of the second generation. And it, he is to be served a brutal punishment of 10 generations locked up in a bricked up pit with a hole for food slop and then to be executed after that 10 generation run. And so... He flees into the night in the dog bones, breaking many with crystal bodies who attempt to stop him and jumping his way out of the fortress unexpectedly. A couple of things to mention that punishment is very brutal, mm-hmm. but you missed the brutal part of it. He is to be beaten until broken. I can't remember the exact term used until shattered. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of defined last week, which is the only reason that I kind of skipped it. This is it was just more explicit this week. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, but then set to live out the 10 generations in the pit. Mm -hmm. So he he is set to be in excruciating pain for 10 generations. Are they on the 10th generation of Chondra yet? That's a great question. I don't I think they're Um, on the ninth yeah i think you're about right so if they're on the ninth right now and it's been a thousand eight hundred years a thousand years yeah that's ish yeah he's he's in for a millennia of torture before starvation yeah uh, definitely (laughs) that's a i mean i think that's a great point is that the that there are so many different generations trying to find a firm number here okay so there were 11 generations according to the text so far the 11s were being taught gotcha yeah so it's, it's been a reference inside of the book yeah and i guess i guess here's the here's the question what is the length of a generation is it until a generation dies is that the lifespan of a generation no well it doesn't feel like that because the first hasn't died you know what right. i mean like that's what i'm saying so none of them have died so it feels more like a class in like a high school sense you know what i mean like it's a it's a birthing generation not a dying right. generation yeah uh, so you gotta look at it from the front end as opposed to the back end but yeah to your point it is it, it's a giant question mark flagrant question mark mm-hmm. it would have to be that way because it, it it couldn't progress until he dies. Right. Right. The oldest member of the generation would be holding back everyone from being born. If we're based on death. Yeah. Cool. That makes sense. Anything else on 10 soon? Anything else you missed? I liked adding in the description of 
the pit and the eternity of damnation effectively oh i guess what this section does is maybe not entirely but it almost shoots my theory in the dick Which uh, the idea that the there are no more first generations and that mm, yeah. it's it's all a puppet show by the seconds it's still possible that they they had some plant to uh, to pose as a first generation to call down but it seems more likely that the first are actually in, aligned with the seconds at this point yeah yeah it, it does seem it does seem more like the seconds have been assigned to take the duties of the first like the the sort of mundaneities i should say almost of what the first generation have to go through or have right. to be responsible for yeah 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 in their age exactly yeah that makes sense to me okay cool with that we go into part three the broken skies we start with chapter 34 here logbook ferrochemy it should be noted is the power of balance of the three powers only it was known to men before the conflict between preservation and ruin came to a head in ferrochemy power is stored up then later drawn upon there is no loss of energy just a changing of the time and rate of its use hmm so this is regarded as a balance but i don't know if i buy that sure entirely it it, it feels self-sufficient in the idea okay. of a cycle of energy mm-hmm. but if we've got three sources of power and there are three three types of magic why wouldn't we have three sources of power and if there is a well for ruin and if I'm right in thinking that there's a well for preservation, is there a third force tied directly to ferrochemy as opposed to the attribution that it's the balance between the two? I think that is likely, not likely, but a, f- a possibility. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that makes sense to me. It it does it does raise questions of is there a third source of power or what is this third source of power? How how does it draw upon? Could it be more of one force than another, or could it just be one force and hasn't been declared yet? It it does ask. There's a giant question mark left mm-hmm. right there inside of this logbook. The other ones have been answering, and this one feels more like. He was trying to answer <laughs> and trying to point out that there could be a balance, but yeah. Yeah. Pretending to answer. Yeah. I mean, are you saying that I was pretending to answer? No, it kind of, okay. It was pretending to answer. Fair, fair point. Fair point. So from that logbook entry, we move into Marsh to start the third part of this novel. This third part of the novel, of course, is called the broken skies. So, This scene with him walking up the steps and killing everyone in his way with those ritual triangles from the Lord Ruler has the biggest what if the worst version of Magneto was alive and did not give a shit about anybody that I've ever read anywhere else like this is murderous sociopath given it's it's not Marsh doing it it's ruin but through you know through Marsh ruin is acting it's just wild. And there's just this sort of aura of calm, cool collectedness that is just like a lot to really take in from this brief chapter. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that it's it's ruin acting, not Marsh. And I don't know if it's better Mm -hmm. or worse because of this. 
like depending on how you look at it, you could make the argument either way that it, it is ruin, but Marsh is intentionally giving up control, but is still aware of everything that's happening. We know contextually that he doesn't feel the weight of things like he would if he was completely conscious and like out of ruins control. But at the mm-hmm. same time, he's still aware of it. So like, does that make this worse or does that make it more forgivable? I think it makes it palatable. I don't think that it makes it more forgivable. I think it makes it something that can be stomached, not something that is acceptable. Okay. Um, which is on your spectrum and just that's where it I is. stand on that spectrum. Is it, is it makes it, it still, it still lets it contains bad connotation, but it at the very least makes me give a brief pause, especially because at the very end of the chapter, Marsh actively reflects on this idea that how much of a relief it would be to actually just kill these people right now, as opposed to making them suffer what is eventually going to happen to them. And I, I think that that is, that's a twisted mercy that I think comes from ruin inhabiting his perspective, but still nonetheless feels like a mercy given what he knows ruin to be capable of. Yeah. It's intentional. Like he has an mm-hmm. end game. He has a plan. Yeah. I don't know if he'll have the opportunity to, to enact it. I'm still worried that him giving up control to ruin so often and for so long will diminish his ability to push back against it later. But that's a problem for tomorrow, Marsh. <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. <laughs> it's definitely a problem for eventually, Marsh. Yeah. Oh, man. And as he continues to make his way through this mansion, he arrives upstairs and runs a spike through the man's heart, the owner of this mansion, stealing his almantic ability as a smoker. We also start to get some of the rules of hemolurgy, that there's this sort of freshness to the kill when it's executed with the spike. What do you, what do you make of this sort of whole moment of him going and collecting this ability and this sort of rule on the spike itself? I thought he didn't kill the guy. I thought he explicitly, explicitly he left it through it, his heart. But he, I, I thought it was mentioned that he left it for Ruin because Ruin wanted to save that for himself. No, he... So Ruin ran the spike through the guy. What does it say, like, at the end of this section? Because I that, totally no, no. swear okay. it said that Marsh didn't kill him because it, no. he, he okay. was saving it for Ruin. What you're conflating is the idea that what I was just talking about, which is that they didn't kill the people in the mansion that were around because they Uh, left many of them alive. Yeah. Okay. No, he is explicit. This guy is explicitly dead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Had that mixed up in my head. No, no worries. I mean, it's, it's a small section, but it's quite a bit of kind of context dense shit yeah ah you were not wrong here's the text line ready so the man knelt confused as marsh left he didn't kill them the part uh, part of him wished to unfortunately ruin wanted to claim that privilege for himself which is when he's walking away from the town so it, it does kind of sound as though something is about to happen and ruin is about to kill them but it's it's a delay of action delay of game 
Briefly, Marsh was tempted to wait until the man sobered up so that killing him could be performed properly, but Rune would have none of that. Marsh sighed at the injustice of it and then slammed the unconscious man down against the floor and drove a small bronze spike through his heart. It wasn't as large or as thick as an Inquisitor spike, but it killed just as well. Marsh ripped it out of the man's heart, leaving the former nobleman dead, blood pooling on the floor. Yep. Yep, there we go. Yeah. He did. Dead AF. He dead, yo. Okay. But thinking about that dead man and the freshness, sort of the the capabilities of this system. Mm-hmm. And we know we, we were given the example of it stealing obviously ferrochemical abilities. Now we we've seen it steal an elementic capability. What do you what you think? I'm still trying to figure out how this like there there has to be a balance of in some way. There has to be a cycle and like a recycling of this energy because it's mentioned that energy is created and energy is destroyed and energy is in balance. But I think truly that there's going to be a way that this all works together as one machine and there's going to be a cycle and like how, how is this energy recycled from ruin into preservation from hemallergy into Alamancy, like there has to be a way for that to to work and maybe ferrochemy is the somehow the process by which that can happen but i still don't quite understand it and feel like there's a piece missing okay all right that's what i'm thinking about i i think that's a reasonable <laughs> thing to think about because it's still you know as mentioned, I, I feel like we get a lot of things about hemallergy, and you're thinking more about the cycle of hemallergy, allomancy, and ferrochemy than you are about hemallergy itself, if that makes sense. You're trying to work out that you've now moved on from the small magic system into how did these trio of magic systems fit together. And I'm kind of wondering your thoughts about the small magic system, if that makes sense. Hemallergy itself? Yes. So... God, it, it all feeds together, though, because it, it requires course. me to understand how it fed together the whole time it fed no, together the whole it time. Did. It did. But yep. how am I going to talk about the hemallergical magic system and how how it relates to this section mm-hmm. without me trying to figure out how allomancy works within the body and blood of an allomancer? And how that can be stolen. Fair enough. Because this, think- this isn't really telling me anything about hemallergy. It's telling me about the process by which alimentic abilities are siphoned into a spike. And that process is stabbing. But <laughs> but there's clearly something that happens when stabbing happens. We do get more on this throughout the logbooks. We'll get there. With that, we'll move into chapter 35. Again, these are pretty short chapters here at the end, so kind of going through them as we will. Logbook here. Hemallergy is a power about which I wish I knew far less. To ruin, power must have an inordinately high cost. Using it must be attractive. You must sow chaos and destruction in its very implementation. In concept, it is a very simple art a parasitic one without other people to steal from hemallergy would be useless. Yeah. There's a rule. They're stealing the abilities from a body by stabbing someone Mm -hmm. with a spike of a Mm -hmm. specific type of metal. Mm -hmm. It's the nuggy blood. (laughs) It's it's the nuggy blood. It's that, it's that sweet, sweet nuggy blood. Okay. 
So moving into this chapter, of course, we go back to spook chatting with Breeze before quickly departing when the we'll, we'll call it the phantom for your sake. But the phantom Kelsier fires a parting shot that he never really liked Breeze to begin with. Yeah. What a dick. He did say early on contextually that they were all chosen for a reason. He didn't say that they were all chosen because he liked them. True. So there, there's that to keep in mind but this would also be a very effective subtle way of sowing distrust between spook and the other members of the crew giving him reason to not share information with breeze to distance distance himself from it while while still being faithful to kelsier and kelsier's crew and the spirit of kelsier Mm -hmm. it gives him a legitimate reason to not trust breeze that's fair. Yeah. That makes sense to me. If there's some um, nefarious if, plot that this phantom is trying to play out. It begins to sow some seeds of doubt for sure. There's there's definitely a there are definitely questions raised here that we can ask ourselves in these moments. So I, I totally feel that. With that, I do want to move into kind of the I, I think that a lot of Spook's chapter moves very smoothly as we we kind of have these questions of the Phantom, right? And of Kelsier. And that is sort of kind of fired back at him in a couple of different moments in which he even suggests that it might be easier to kill Quellian. But Spook is in and of himself on a very different warpath, which is that of chasing down the lead of the person of whom exposed him for who he is. And that path is to find Dern for a conversation. What'd you make of Dern's use of the story of Spook's death to manipulate the population into action against Quellian? This feels like a much larger scale chess game than I was originally giving it credit for Mm -hmm. when it comes to, to Dern. But given that and looking at it from that lens, it, it, Understanding that Dern knew who Spook was makes a lot more sense and, and tracks well. I think uh, I think something we should continue to keep in mind, or I I will continue to keep in mind, is that this Kelsier character is constantly feeding Spook information and and just getting these interjections from Spook and these these conversations. Like what conversations are not affected by this phantom is always going Mm. to be in my head yeah that's that's a fair point i do want to bring up here at the very least talking about some like scene setting that happens here the fact that a tin eye shows up in town he has unlimited money seemingly points to him directly being connected to the empire and whatnot just goes to show how poorly spook is actually covering his tracks as an alamancer and that is fascinating tangent on him being kind of ineffective as a spy in this moment like he's instead of being as quiet as he thinks he is even his in his approach as this sort of tin savant he is more out there than i think he ever wanted to be or intended to be yeah he's not that subtle yeah he's a kid (laughs) like i that's that's what i'm trying to give him credit for is like he's yeah you know he's a teenager right exactly Thinks he's sneaky. Mm-hmm. Not that sneaky. He's not sneaky. Yeah. yeah. 
definitely wanted to bring that up to get back mm-hmm. to uh what we were talking about with Kelsier, right? And and sort of the Kelsier that's there. Spook has this conversation with Kelsier about Kelly Quellian and just killing him outright. What to do next? There's kind of some back and forth that goes on there. Did you have any particular thoughts? I mean, touch on anything you want to, of course. I think you've done a good job of laying out a lot of your foundation here as you approach it, but I mean, it's it's still sort of that idea that this could be the same entity that was Zane's god. Mm-hmm especially with the calls for violence and the calls for murder. It's not the same sort of like outburst situation, but at the same time, maybe that's intentional and maybe that's feeding into the individual personality of whoever they're inhabiting or interacting with. I could totally believe that, that Zane was this person prone to impulsive decisions. So making sudden impulsive like shouts about like right hey you should do this right fucking now is very different than spook who is a lot more calm and maybe more calculated in his decision making so mm-hmm. a, a rational conversation about why you should murder the citizen is maybe more effective and more of a more of a strategic way of manipulating spook that's an interesting way to look at it, kind of comparing old Kelsier versus how you'd see new Kelsier making moves. Mm-hmm. Okay. To end this chapter, Spook is approached by a stranger in the night to save his sister from Kellyan, <laughs> trading labor for his sort of pseudo superheroism. It's it's very much like kind of seeking out a vigilante to do to do a good work. Did you have any thought here, thoughts here? So I believe this stranger was one of Quellian's like guards or something like it's mm-hmm. mentioned that he recognizes him right it's not like a yep. just sudden person off the street okay cool good good to know yep. otherwise I was gonna be like oh no <laughs> no yeah no you're right but I kind of like that spook is just off the bat understanding that his powers can be used as a bargaining chip as opposed to just jumping into like vigilanteism or phil- philanthropic yeah, so I, super, I feel superheroism works that. well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great right. descriptor. He is he is instead uh, doing a better job of bartering as opposed to just being outright good. Okay. Yeah. I I mean that's what you said. I was just reiterating it. I'm not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't add anything there. I no, was just, I, yeah, but that was okay. a good. Yep. Just make sure. A summation of sorts. With that, we go into chapter thirty-six. This is a long one here, folks, so stay in here with me. In hemallurgy, the type of metal used in a spike is important, as is the positioning of that spike on the body. For instance, steel spikes take physical elementic powers, the ability to burn pewter, tin, steel, or iron, and bestow them upon the person receiving the spike. Which of these four is granted, however, depends on where the spike is placed. Spikes made from a certain other metal steal ferrochemical abilities. For example, all of the original Inquisitors were given a pewter spike, which, after first being pounded through the body of a ferrochemist gave the inquisitor the ability to store up healing power though they couldn't do so as quickly as a real ferrochemist as per the law of hemallergic decay this obviously is where the inquisitor got their infamous abilities to recover from wounds quickly and was also why they need to rest so much Mm -hmm. it's good information this is so much information it's a lot of information 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of rules. I think that you now have potentially enough information to throw everything together, if that makes sense. Outside of maybe some very obtuse things like, well, this is how the blood cells of a, a person who has alimantic blood has, and this is how, a, you know what I mean? Like, there, there's some things that remain too microbiological to really dig into. Mm-hmm. And that's not the intent. Does that make sense? It does. It, it there, feels much in the same realm of why an alimancer can't affect metals inside of another alum, inside of a person's body. Oh yeah. I mean, there, there are reasons. I'm sure perhaps. Yeah. And I know Marsh yeah. mentions that he can like see the iron content of someone's blood. Mm-hmm. So like that, yeah, throws that there, under the, there are under things the bus. that transcend yeah. the rules as you understand them, and that's intentional. So, yep, <laughs> yep. But this, I think, does a good job of, at the very least, beginning to give us a lot of foundation. This week entirely gives us a lot of foundation for where hemology is and where it's going, and right. our understanding of it. So. I want to talk about Set and Ellen's conversation kind of at large, and this conversation is a large chunk of the chapter. It goes hard. It's back and forth. You can kind of feel the weight of Set's anger at Ellen's actions and and sort of the way that Ellen defends himself in these moments, kind of talking through the decision to go through and meet Yeoman, the decision to go through with the siege, and it really kind of in a very well of ascension way defend what already happened what do you make of this conversation between these two very different deposed kings it felt good this conversation felt good through and through not in Mm -hmm. the same way that ellen's conversation with yeoman felt good but for her for similar reasons that they're both making good points Mm -hmm. ellen and yeoman are interacting on this like chess level whereas set and ellen are interacting on this like just they're playing like risk trying to play together to make a move you know what i mean yeah yeah like that's that's a good way to it's put like it. they're playing axis and allies is maybe a better example that people might not understand but where like you have to work together as a team yeah without being able to fully talk it's, about it but they they're gonna butt heads it. And mm-hmm. they're both going to have very valid reasons for why their decision is right. And they're going to be completely like opposed to what the other person is suggesting, but they're both mm-hmm. right. <laughs> right. You know, so totally, I don't know. I like that. We got both sort of arguments in this section because they, they just feel different, but both feel good for different reasons. I mean, I'm not I'm not yes. sure I, I know there's a better way to to articulate that, but I don't know it off the top of my head right now. Yeah, I I do. I do largely agree with you. I, I think that the analogy of chess versus trying to take like two chess players playing against each other versus two players debating a chess move makes a ton of sense because they're both sitting there kind of butting heads, not competing against each other, but instead trying to elaborate upon their position on the board and why they think they should take a different position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to justify the next move. So makes sense to me. 
you know, and, and I, I really enjoy this conversation. It goes on for quite a long time. But then we go up to Demu and kind of the way that he's interacting with the soldiers of whom have gone through the mist sort of sacrifice and whatnot and how those stricken could potentially have been punished for a lack of faith, for for a lack of faith. And he kind of attributes this to the Church of the Survivor and sort of the the teachings there and he he also brings this up again later we kind of like wax and wane between this and two different points in the chapter with a little bit of kind of ham interceding here but he demu eventually comes to the point that he believes that he isn't worthy of his position as a leader of this army as the general and this again to demu feels kind of reinforced by the precision of the numbers by the precision of the people of whom have been decimated by this plague by by the mist rather not the plague but the in the number of months that kelsier was in the pits reinforced this perspective there feels like a lot of justifications and rationalization without verification yeah there's a bunch of shins for you yeah it's amusing but mm-hmm. ultimately it's really frustrating how these connections and these like coincidences yeah are made and used to prove the truth of the statements, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's, it's a runaway religious fruitcake ism. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's the birth of a cult runaway chain reaction. Right. Yeah. It's a birth, the birth of a cult or religion in this sense, you're just getting stronger and stronger through not real valid arguments. But well, and, and what's what feels crazy to me is that it's the Church of the Survivor, right? And like Demu survived in theory, so it feels like it should maybe be considered the opposite that you're like put through this task, you know. And and the fact that he survived should be reinforcing his faith, not you know what I mean? Like it's it's just an odd thing where it feels like it's almost a mismatch. Why would it be mm-hmm. a punishment if if you're taking it from the face the faith lens? You know what I mean? Like it's. It's just weird. It's a weird note. Yes, but I love how hard in this chapter Ellen is working to not be the bad guy as well, to not kill everyone inside of the city, to figure out a way to win this as quickly as possible without ever really being the aggressor. All of that entire internal dialogue, I think, is really yummy and appreciated from him. I, I, I you know, I can't think of a better way to say it because it's like I just wanted this sooner you know i want all of this rationalization at the beginning of the book and we get it here when it feels you know pertinent and explanatory in a good way but yeah i did this this is that yummy justification that i was kind of begging for and i continue to use the term yummy because yeah it it's a it it is satiating while not especially nutritious this is you know this is my expectation not my deliverance this is not my you know this is not satisfaction necessarily but yeah it just feels like more progression towards ellen and his time as emperor becoming more and more aligned with the the trajectory of the lord ruler Mm -hmm. and uh what he potentially went through at the beginning of his reign and how he eventually came to terms with the idea of this is how it has to be as a justification for the sort of actions or inactions that he takes or doesn't take. Yeah. And I, this does have that sort of analytical sense, especially when you think about the Lord ruler really in the early days where he, was sort of absorbing those cultures 
and kind of choosing choosing the cultures that he wanted to keep and not keep. This mm-hmm. does have that same semblance, but on a smaller scale, I think. You, you scale it down for Ellen because it does feel more personal. And I think that Ellen's threat, while very supernatural in nature and very larger than life, is is one that it's so it's so interesting to think about this dichotomy between the two because the Lord Ruler was preparing for this eventuality. And Ellen, when faced with this eventuality, is actually dealing with smaller problems than what the Lord Ruler prepared for. Right now, the immediacy of the moment is a little bit smaller. Yes, but I think it's important to remember that Ellen is in his fourth year as emperor. And the Lord Ruler, like the earliest sort of He's span not in of his time. fourth year as emperor. Oh, yeah, you're right. Not even. No. It's yeah, been four years year. since the Lord Ruler died. The yeah. the earliest time span, other than like the immediacy of the Lord Ruler and his time with the power of mm-hmm. preservation, the earliest time span that they talk about is like the first couple centuries yeah. of, of what he does. Like, we don't know if this is exactly what the Lord Ruler went through in the first year or two right, or right. decade. And I, I don't. I don't mean to use that as like a demeaning thing. I, all that I'm saying is like to your exact point, the threat of ruin for the Lord ruler was a thousand year threat for Ellen. Is a, it's a present threat, but the reality is, is that he still has to deal with a very small level of like bullshit to get people to deal with. Like, and that's, that's what he's kind of, he has to square away the, year one problems of the Lord ruler at the same time as squaring away the thousand year problem of the Lord ruler. Like he has to deal with the first year and the last year of the year ruler or the year ruler, the Lord ruler at the same time. Yeah, that's true. And that's what I think is so crazy because it it makes it feel very dichotomous. Unfair. (laughs) Very unfair. It is for sure unfair. It puts our boy Ellen in a really tough spot where he doesn't want to be philosophically. Mm. so yeah to that point they're having a conversation bouncing back and forth between demu and ellen and talking about a lot of different things and sort of the way that they should be fearful of the myths and thinking about the camp and extreme faith and ellen is about ready to ask demu a question about faith and then shouting begins in ellen's bivouacked army mm-hmm you just love the term bivouac, don't you? Dude, it's not used frequently enough. It's true. It doesn't need to be, but it is used in this chapter. And I was like, fuck yeah. Yep. Saying it again. Yep. yep. Do they mention what's going on here? Or is it just screaming and that's the end of the section? Just shouting. That's okay. the end of the section. Okay. Good. Then my then my guest doesn't doesn't have to be beholden to anything. But I feel like anytime we've seen shouting within army and i think it's happened a couple times it's always been coloss approaching i Hmm. think do you know of a different time that it wasn't i feel like that's all times this novel no i I think you're right inside of this book i'm guessing the coloss are coming to town the coloss are coming to town the coloss are coming to town that means inquisitors probably ho 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 but this does leave us on a good cliffhanger because this is like we were saying, like a lot of character development. This is a tie over between sections. So we kind of get like the end of one bit. Then we get the beginning of the next. So 
there are questions there. We end the week, of course, as always, talking about the next logbook. And the logbook here says, Hemallergic decay was less obvious in Inquisitors that had been created from Mistborn. Since they already had Allomantic powers, the addition of other abilities made them awesomely strong. In most cases, however, Inquisitors were created from Mistings. It appears that Seekers, like Marsh, were the favored recruits. For when a Mistborn wasn't available, an Inquisitor with enhanced bronze abilities was a powerful tool for searching out Ska Mistings. Right. So I guess I guess my biggest question is do you have to be allomantic in order to accept hemallergical powers or could you mm, be great question. a ferricmist or could you be entirely mundane and I don't know if we get any of those answers that's not answered yet for sure but it I it just saying like that's that is a question at this point for sure mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah. Is is there a requirement of status? This is more of a clarification of why Inquisitors were chosen the way they were chosen. And that makes total sense. I really mm-hmm. appreciate that this logbook addresses that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I, th- I think that it's a great logbook for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Cool. Any cool. any other thoughts on on this section on this week? I don't believe so. Mind for it. Okay cool with that we go into next week next week we are going to be reading chapter 37 through 43 again that's chapter 37 through 43 of the hero of ages so that's where we'll leave you for this week thank you as ever to tim and andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on you can check out the links in our show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, all of our social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. Yeah, don't forget we're an Atomic Pylon production. We've got a lot of other shows going on at the moment. You can feel free to check out Words and Whiskey Short Pours as well as Tales of Kana and Hallerpod if you want to check out the back catalog of episodes. We've got a lot more coming out over the course of this next month, so stay tuned as we launch the full bevy of shows. Beyond that, as PJ mentioned, you can interact with us on our socials at Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, as well as you can email us any questions or thoughts or anything else that you might have at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. You can, of course, join our Patreon, support us at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, and you can get our t shirts on T Public. Just follow the link inside of the show notes, as PJ mentioned. We've got a lot of merch there. We recently had someone go through and buy a bunch of sweatshirts. We recently sold a onesie of which looks incredible. And I like literally shed an almost tear staring at it. It was adorable in the best ways. I love mm-hmm. it. <laughs> it was so, great. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, everybody, so much for your support. It really does mean the world to us. And we will see you next week. Yes, we will. All right. See you next week.